0: Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Welcome everyone. Good to see you. If you're just joining us, you're actually coming at a great time uh, in the life of our church because we've just started a series entitled, Welcome to the Family. And it's about the kind of church family we're trying to become ...or create or, or nurture here... Um, with, ...with God's help. And so if you're coming, checking out church for the first time... ...this is where you're going to get an uncensored kind of... ...figure out what this church is really all about. And when you think about a family gathering... ...you actually kind of think, oh well, wait a minute... ...maybe I shouldn't be here for that... ...because families' uh, gatherings are intimate... ...you know, for members only. But not with this family... ...because this is a different kind of family... ...that we're asking God to create. Um, as we saw last week in his letter to the Ephesians... ...the Apostle Paul actually noted how the church of Jesus Christ is not a closed-door club. (laughs) Rather, when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all people, the doorway into God's family was open for everyone. Paul wrote, the mystery is that people who have never heard of God before and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, actually stand on the same ...ground before God. It's weird because you think insiders get special privileges, you know. Insiders have been here a long time, that counts for something. Uh Uh-uh, not with Jesus. (laughs) They get the same offer, the same help, the same promises in Christ Jesus. And the message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. Translation, God's family is an open family. One that's accessible and welcoming to anyone regardless of your past regardless of your religious background or lack thereof, anyone has access to the family of God through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's how we've arrived with our mission here at Liquid, actually. We noted that our church exists for one main reason, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So whether you're just starting out... You're miles into the journey or just returning maybe to the faith after some time away. Maybe you were an insider, then you are an outsider, you dropped out, but you're kind of now a returner and wondering if people are welcome back. Uh-uh. We're all on equal footing before God. Even if you are not a Christian and you're in a Christian church, you're connecting with what's going on here, but you still have a lot of questions, that's great. You're welcome here too. It's an open and invitational community. But we noted that we lead people into a growing relationship with Christ in three primary ways. Can you recall what they were? We focused on pursuing three vital relationships. Intimacy with God, community with insiders, and influence with outsiders, or those outside the faith. We actually don't sever our relationships with them. That's what some you know, churches or religions will do. it will be like, oh, everyone else are infidels. Uh-uh. In fact, we intentionally nurture our relationships with people who don't share our beliefs because we realize, regardless of where they're at, they matter deeply to God. He loves each one. And he desires each to be welcomed into his family forever. That's what he wants. A big family. Now, that's all great. Because pictures and and notions of family can be all warm and cuddly. But for some, the word family can raise some concerns. Because families can be funky, can't they? I saw a movie uh, earlier this year, a couple months ago, called The Family Stone. Anyone see this? And as you can tell from the movie poster, it's not the right finger. It kind of gives you a hint that family dynamics aren't always all that cordial. (laughs) This is a movie about families. Families can be a high-wire act, can't they? (laughs) I mean, families are supposed to be soft and safe places where you're accepted as is. But family dynamics can get tense or weird... (laughs) And even people related by blood can wind up taking digs and pot shots at one another. In the worst circumstances, family members can wind up actually estranged or hostile. Or not speaking with one another. Now, I don't know what your family was like growing up. Maybe it was tight. Maybe it was close-knit. Or maybe it was actually too tight and too close-knit. Fun word for that might be enmeshed. (laughs) Or maybe your family was actually pretty edgy. You know, you had, you know, competition with your siblings. Or maybe you had no siblings or lacked a mom or dad and actually kind of felt isolated growing up. Family can be a loaded word. Our point of reference for how to feel, look, and act towards one another typically comes from the family dynamic that we were accustomed to growing up. And so that's one of the reasons why we're doing this series called Welcome to the Family. Because we want to help describe the kind of family dynamics that God had in mind when he opened the door of his family to each one of us. The Bible tells us that the moment that we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we actually become brothers and sisters of one another. In other words, uh, Tim's not just the guy who plays drums at my church. He's now my brother in Christ. We're related, (laughs) Uh, all of a sudden, formerly unconnected people all have something in common. They've been adopted into this much larger family. And as our father, God's actually got expectations, as any parent would, for how we relate to our new siblings. And so that's one of the reasons we're introducing the Liquid Church Family Covenant, an excerpt of which you'll find in your bulletin tonight. Did everyone get one of these? It's on a green sheet here. This is a, this is a statement of commitment that we're kind of introducing about those who consider themselves members of our church family. I can bring up the lights just a little bit for this. So I want you to be able to see this. It says Liquid Church Family Covenant. Now, here's the deal. A lot of churches have what they call membership. But I've always been turned off by that word. (laughs) Because you typically use the word member when you pay to join something. (laughs) I'm a member of the Shady Lakes Golf Club. Good for you. I don't really know how to golf, but imagine I was a snob. Or, I just joined the Y. I joined the YMCA. I'm a member there now, right? And the notion of membership typically denotes two things to people. It draws a sharp distinction between who's in and privileged and who's out. In the circumstance of like a club or a gym, for instance, there are paying members and then there are non-paying members. If you haven't paid, sorry, you can't work out here. It has little to do with blood relation or a relationship at all for that matter. It's It's like a contract for services. So that's one of the reasons why membership can be a misleading term. And the second unfortunate weakness of the term membership is that it makes relationship actually secondary. The emphasis is on performance or service. That is, I'm a member as long as this place is meeting my needs. As long as I like what's going on here, you know, I'll continue to renew my membership. And some folks treat churches like that, like a club. Not only are there sharp distinctions between who's in and who's out, but I will be committed here as long as I like the service. As long as the music is to my taste. Can you turn it a little down this week? As long as the preacher keeps it short. Can you just kind of condense it to it? Or whatever. You're not held together by relationship... ...by your connection to other people here... ...or your commitment to like sharing a common life with them. That's the difference. That's what a family is about. Not only are they bound by blood or birth... ...but they share a common life together. They actually spend time getting to know one another... ...outside of the formal, you know, family meeting times. And they actually find their commitment is to one another... ...not just an institution that renders services. So a family covenant is relational. It's a two-way street. If there's any contract, it's a commitment on how to relate to one another within this family. It's qualitative in nature. Now, the church I grew up in stressed membership. But membership really meant two things, practically. You had to stuff envelopes once a year for the business meeting. Everyone had to do it. (laughs) I'm serious. And the second was, you had to vote. ...on the annual church budget. That was it. Those were the two, you know, things, responsibilities... ...if you became a member. It wasn't relational at all. It was just requirements and mechanical responsibilities... ...stuffing envelopes, financial stuff. And so that's a sad interpretation of membership in a church family... ...because it drains of its rich relational significance. It's not a club... ...but it functions more like a company. No. We're trying to recover the relational nature of the church that Jesus birthed. And we recognize that it is more like a family... And yes, actually, we have differences. Family members are not all alike, are they? <laughs> no, not at all. That doesn't, what, that's not what unity means. Like, we all actually have this, we believe, in, you know, exactly the same thing about every uh, point of, uh, of subjectivity, or we dress the same. No, we actually have a lot of differences. And yes, there are responsibilities we have, but our responsibilities are to one another. They're relational in nature, more qualitative. How do we treat one another? What do we say and do to each other? How do we interact? So if you're looking at this working draft of our church family covenant, and it's just a working draft, you can see it begins with a statement of agreement. It says, hey, what are the basics? Having received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and being in agreement with the mission and beliefs of Liquid, I unite with this church family and commit myself to God and my brother and sisters to do the following lick envelopes once a year. Right? No, no. You'll notice that our first core value... ...that we're emphasizing is very relational in nature. I covenant with my brothers and sisters... ...to safeguard the unity of my church. That's the first core commitment... ...that we're inviting people who consider themselves... ...members of Liquid, better yet, family... ...to make. To agree and to promise to do whatever it takes... ...to safeguard the unity of our church... ...by doing three things... What's the first? Loving one another. Second, refusing to gossip. And third, by resolving conflict quickly. And we're going to look at each of those briefly tonight. But this is how we're introducing what it means to be a part of the family here at Liquid. It's not how much you paid to get in. (laughs) It's not how many people you know. It's not how much stuff you do. It's how you relate to people. There are actually going to be three or four other parts of this covenant. You'll notice we left them blank, and we'll be looking at each one through the month of April. But the first one is this, a commitment to God and one another to safeguard the unity of our church family. Now, unity, U-N-I-T-Y. It's a pretty big deal, actually, from God's perspective. In fact, more often than not, you'll notice we refer to our, our, our gathered congregation as a community rather than a church, and that's not semantics. We take all of our cues and core values from the Word of God. And as we did last week, I want to invite you actually to turn to the book of Ephesians. Okay? This is that letter Paul wrote from jail to an early group of believers in Ephesus. Now this was a strategic coastal gateway in the ancient world. And while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote this letter to a young church, this fledgling band of new Christians who were trying to figure out what it meant to actually belong to the family of God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 3, but today we'll look actually one chapter over. Ephesians chapter 4. Much of this series is actually going to be grounded in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, just a reminder, I'm in jail again. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. Stop there. One Body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul's overarching emphasis can be summed up in one word. What? Unity. In fact, that's the heading in my Bible here, actually. Look at it. Unity in the body of Christ. Unity, a state of being. Uno. One. Oneness. To come into agreement or harmony with one another. Now, this is a powerful concept. Yeah, you can see it on my t-shirt. But it's more than just a t-shirt. <laughs> Rarely in our world do you see an example of true unity. You might see glimmers of it like in a sports team that like comes together to achieve a goal, right? Some of you are watching the Final Four and you see like the teams, like they're not necessarily the best teams, but there's a unity to their spirit and they're achieving striving towards a goal. That's sort of unity. But there may be actually no true love or depth of relationship in the members of that team, actually. They may hate each other. <laughs> the Yankees won a lot of World Series that way. <laughs> they're professionals, and they happened to be seeking a similar prize. Now, this concept of biblical unity is much more than just getting along or pulling together to win the World Series. In fact, I'd like to argue that unity is supposed to be the most defining and powerful characteristic in a Christian church family. At least, it was according to Jesus. Keep your finger in Ephesians 4 and flip over, actually, to John. John chapter 7. That's the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And this is the historical record... ...of the words of Jesus. And it records one of Jesus' final prayers... ...before he was arrested and condemned to execution. John 17, verses 20 through 23. This is an amazing verse here. Jesus prays... ...my prayer is not for them alone... ...that is, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me... ...through their message... ...that all of them may be... ...everyone together? One. Father... Just as you are in me, and I am in you. Skip down to verse 23. May they be brought to complete, what? Unity. To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you hear what actually Jesus is saying? That actually one of the most powerful testimonies of the truth of the gospel... That Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world so we might be forgiven and born again into the family of God. One of the most powerful proofs that Jesus was who he said he is is the unity of his church. I pray for those who believe in me that all of them may be one father brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you have sent me. That is, their ability to live in relational harmony... And peace with one another will be one of the most striking proofs that what Jesus said was true. More than that, our unity will give direct evidence that Jesus was sent by God. And that God loves the world so much that he gave his life for everyone. Whoa. Can you see why unity is important in God's eyes? You know, you figure Jesus' final prayer. These are his last words to his followers before he would die on the cross. Would focus sharply on essential aspects of the Christian faith. And what does he pray about? Unity. One. Oneness. See, because Jesus knew a secret. That when a church family is truly unified, that is united in purpose and relationally healthy with one another, it is a powerful force to be reckoned with. When a church is divided, and some of you come from divided churches, where is its attention? On itself. On trying desperately to mend its own brokenness. But when a family is relationally un- unified, one mind, one heart, one spirit, where is it able to look and invest its energies? To mending the brokenness of the world. That's why Paul gives it central billing in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Flip back there. He says in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, great. You're like, cool. One, Unity. Unity! <laughs> that's a fine goal. But the problem is, as with any family, unity does not come naturally, does it? <laughs> now, in fact, in many families, discord and division, competitiveness insensitivity often actually rule the day. And that's why most families fight. Each member has faults and flaws. Dear old dad is actually kind of insensitive and a little remote or kind of hard to love. Mom is loving, but she plays favorites. She loves Karen more than Tommy. And that's why the siblings are in competition. They're envious and jealous of one another. Think about it. What was your family like? What were the dynamics of your family? No conflict? Everyone got along just fine and dandy? <laughs> Doubtful unless your brother's name was Wally and they called you the beeve? <laughs> Members of any family have flaws and faults, weaknesses, blind spots. And God's family is no different. In the Bible, Paul makes no pretending about sugarcoating that reality. He actually writes in verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, keyword, bearing with one another in love. Now what's another word for bearing with one another? Putting up with. Thank you. (laughs) Did you take a Greek class? That's it. In other words, you learned in the backseat of the station wagon on your family road trip that family members can get annoying. And you have to put up with them. You have to bear the weight of that. None of us are perfect people. We, have been, we actually have grating personality traits. Have you noticed mine? Annoying habits. Glaring flaws. And God's word is just, totally just, just honors that reality. That's why Paul calls for patience. Gentleness. Humility. Another translation of this verse renders it, be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Let that sink in. The Bible says each one of you has faults. And to live in true community, unity, we will have to learn to actually make allowance for one another. Why? Because of your love. That's the key phrase here. It's all about love. This whole idea started with God's love for you. So much that he laid down his life for yours in your most imperfect, worst state. But it doesn't end there. (laughs) Once we receive God's love for us by trusting Jesus as our Savior, what happens? We enter the family of God and suddenly we inherit the relationships and the responsibility that comes with that. We actually have to learn now to love our brothers and sisters. I wasn't planning on that. (laughs) See, when you're born into your family, you don't actually have a choice in it, do you? (laughs) In your natural family, biologically. You don't actually think, I'm going to have to decide if I'm going to love my little brother, Ben. No. It's actually just our natural impulse. Just cultivating and nurturing that relationship, especially as little Ben grows into big Ben... (laughs) And starts displaying some of those annoying habits of his. Well, that takes some work, doesn't it? Even more in God's family. Unity is not automatic, love is hard won, very costly. And so, this is the first step towards safeguarding the unity of our church by loving one another, just as God loved us and as He calls us to love the guy or the gal in the seat next to us tonight. Now, this word, love in our society, is used so many different ways that its meaning tends to actually get pretty fuzzy because some of you are like, yeah, all right. Unity, unity, love, love, yeah, this church is great. Unity, love, we're the big stuff. We were driving in the car the other day and I said, uh, let's, hey, let's go to Baja Fresh for lunch. You're out on like uh, Route 10 and Colleen says, oh, great, I love tacos. Love. <laughs> what do you Love. I love cheese. <laughs> I, lo- I say I love my dog. I love baseball, spring training. I love sappy, romantic family you know movies like The Family Stone. No, actually that's my wife. <laughs> we say we love all sorts of things. But the kind of love that the Bible is talking about here is much more concrete. And much more costly than simple affection or preference for a type of food. It's relational in nature, surprise, surprise. And it flows from God himself. Quick survey. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. We're told, actually, what love is like. John writes, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from whom? God. It actually comes down from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Those are the three most powerful words of the Bible and the most defining characteristic of the Christian religion that sets it apart from anything else. You'll never find another verse in the Bible that says, God is this. A equals B. This is not a characteristic of God. He is loving. It is his very essence. He is love. Wow. Further, as a Christian, okay, God is love we have a chance to know exactly what love looks like in its most practical expression through the life and death of Jesus Christ. You remember? How many of you, let's see, show your age. How many of you remember that, 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 that crappy foreigner song, I want to know what love is? Remember Lou Graham? I want to know what love is. You know it. Sing the next line. I want you to show me. Remember that? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be doing the closing worship set as well. Thank you. <laughs> I want to know what love is. John actually answers that question directly in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, watch, it goes now, we ought to lay down our lives for Who? Our brothers, there it is again. We're born into this family through love. Our father is defined by love and therefore we as his children are supposed to love one another. How? In a sacrificial way apparently. This is not a wispy sentimental thing. But a costly kind of love that actually cost Jesus his physical life. And so we realize that love is much more than just a feeling, isn't it? It's actually about an intentional attitude. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul puts it this way. He says, okay, this is what the kind of love we're talking about. Love is, is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It's not jealous. It does not boast. Now look at me. It is not proud. It's not rude. What are, you, what are you laughing at? It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. You're talking to me. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Just take a quick inventory of the qualities of true love that Paul lists here. Do they describe your general attitude? Thank you for your honesty. (laughs) Especially towards others in your church family who have obvious faults and flaws. Patience, kindness, slowness to anger. Or are you a scorekeeper? (laughs) That's actually what my three-year-old daughter does, right? At this point, she believes her primary responsibility to her brother is to keep track of what he's doing wrong. Mommy, Walker put his head in the dog dish again. Love. Love love isn't about pretending to just like someone. It's about actually truth-telling, but looking out for the person's well-being. It always protects. It always trusts. That's a key word there. Ooh, trust. And hopes. Looking actually for the best in that person. Now, obviously, there's a sense of understanding and humility in the kind of of love that God's after in our relationships with one another. 1 Peter 3.8 really sums it up. That's why we put it on our family covenant. Finally, in summation, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. I love that. Be sympathetic. That is able to identify with someone else's hurts or what's causing them to act the way they are. Did you know that? Some of those prickly people with the sharpest edges act that way because that's how they've been wounded or previously damaged in life. Therefore, be sympathetic. It's one of the keys to living in harmony as broken, flawed people who are not alike and on the same page most of the time. Now, here's the deal. All this talk of love is great, but I'll admit it's still a little abstract. What does it mean in real time? You know, street level, real nitty-gritty in a community that's supposed to be bound by love. Well, here's the deal. One of the reasons that true unity, oneness, is so rarely evidenced in our world is because there's so many things that can easily wreck it, right? And we can make a a list of that, right? Self-centeredness, ego, look at me, pride, wanting your own way. However, there's one thing that I would argue is more divisive in community than anything else. In my experience, especially within church families, there's actually nothing more corrosive to unity than this little thing called gossip. And unfortunately, most churches, truth be told, are breeding grounds for gossip. This is the most insidious tool of the enemy, in my opinion. Admit it. It's one thing to acknowledge that your siblings have faults, but what happens when their behaviors or words wound you? (laughs) Again, this is a real-world dynamic you see in most biological families. Think about what happens in most families, right? I see it with my two kids, right? Your brother punches you, what do you do? do You You punch him back. Your sister slams you, she's going to be sorry she did that. And when we're kids, that revenge is usually obvious and instantaneous. I see it now. Mommy, Walker's got his head in the dog dish. Walker, my little boy, he's about two and a half, he doesn't have words yet. So he just looks at Chase and he just goes, bam, he nails her. Two and a half, I know. I'm not violent. I don't know where he gets this. see. I don't know. As kids, someone offends you, you deck them, you hit them back. They betray or hurt you, you let them know you're not happy about this. Unfortunately, as adults, we quickly discover that physical reprisal is not celebrated in the adult world. Many of us wish it were, but the fear of lawsuits is all too real. So when someone wounds you with words as an adult, you can't just deck them. It's not socially acceptable, at least in most circles. And so you learn a much more subtle, and I would say destructive skill. And it's called gossip. Highlighting one of our brothers or sisters weaknesses, flaws, or deficiencies in such a way that it actually makes us feel good. Just as physically hitting someone makes you feel better, like, got it out, ah, Thank you privately slicing someone with your words can feel pretty vindicating too can it at least to start in fact i should expand that because a lot of gossip isn't even motivated by a desire to even the score with someone else a lot of the time gossip occurs just because because it's delicious and this paul says is the forbidden fruit that poisons community Back to our main text, Ephesians 4. I want you to skip down to verse 29. Paul gets specific here. Gives you a real specific, real-time example here. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, this is a very interesting verse. Because in a lot of church circles, it's used primarily... ...as an injunction against swear words. This is what happens if you curse. That's how I learned about it growing up. I'd pick up, you know, I'd pick up some language on the playground. i try it at home. I'd be like, hey, where the hell my, is my soda? And boom, oh man. Whoa. <laughs> Promptly get my mouth washed out with soap. And then I'd get this verse. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's about profanity. The problem with that is that it omits the second part of the verse which defines exactly what Paul means by unwholesome talk. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In other words, capture the context. Paul's talking about unity in a church family. And he sets up a contrast for how we talk about and to one another. And he says, only speak words that are helpful for building others up. What's the opposite? Words that are useful for doing what? Tearing others down. Not according to their needs, but according to their weaknesses. You see this? That's the kind of unwholesome talk he's referring to here. Think character assassination. Gossip. Slander. Rumor. Innuendo. What's Glenn doing? Talking with Drew. Maybe we should throw him out. We fill in the blanks, right? And then we kind of whisper, "What do you think's happening?" So, in wholesome talk in this context is not necessarily coarse or brash, but it actually sounds quite innocent. So, so, Todd, I mean, have, have you heard about this? so-and-so? No. Well, what? What? Well, you know, I, I heard such and such happen the other night. Wait a minute. Isn't that just reporting the facts? Isn't that just showing brotherly concern? Yeah, not quite. <laughs> It's interesting, the Bible calls this kind of rhetoric... There's, ...there's a phrase for it in the Bible, hollow speech. Hollow because it actually has no ability to support anything or anyone. It only tears down and is destined to cause harm. Gossip and talking behind someone's back... ...are corrosive elements in a church family environment. And it's been a tactic used by the enemy... ...to divide and cause division in families for thousands of years. And the Bible actually doesn't treat it very lightly... Some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's true. We shouldn't really, you know, talk bad about one another. You know, I'm not going to run her down. Okay. The Bible is so dead set against this kind of rhetoric, it actually includes it among the higher profile sins we'd never even dream of committing. If you want to, you can keep your finger there. Check out Romans 1.29. Paul's talking about, in Romans, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, and he's talking about how those who are enemies of God, not his children, not in his family, have warped minds that cause warped behavior. And he writes this. He says, Romans 129, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of, catch this, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, yada, 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 It keeps going on. Whoa. <laughs> Notice what is dead center in the list of characteristics of God's enemies. Gossips. It's actually sandwiched between murder and God-haters. Not exactly the best of company. The Greek word for gossip here is actually a very interesting one, and I want to put it up here on the screen for you. It's called and pronounced, pisithyrismus. Everyone say it. Pisithyrismus. Now, everyone say, my sister Sally is a pisithyrismus. Actually, you know what? Better yet, but say the word just quietly. Try to say it three times in a row. Pacific to yourself. Do it. Pasithere, do it. What do you hear? What, do you, what does it sound like right now? Whispering. This is an example of a word that's onomatopoeic. Any, any literature majors? I never thought I'd be able to ever use this in a message. Yeah. it's like, you know what it, onomatopoeia is? When a word sounds like what it means. Buzz. Look at the look at the you know the beep. That's actually the meaning of the word whisper. It means to whisper in secret, in the quiet, behind someone's back. Why? So they don't know what you're saying. They can't hear you. Why? Because you're saying something revealing about them. To another person that's going to cause damage. That's what gossip really is. When we find ourselves telling another person damaging information about someone else. Have you heard about so and so? (laughs) Yeah. They broke up. Really? How? Well, I heard Or did you know know Bruce lost his job? Yeah, he he wasn't performing. They let him go. I I don't know what he's going to do. He's got all kinds of debts. Why is gossip so insidious in a family? Because it delights in a brother or sister's failure. Oh my gosh. Did you see Beth the other night? She got completely wasted at the Colorado Cafe and was all over this guy. Yeah, gossip is juicy, make no doubt. But it's a community killer. And it's one of the prime things that God forbids in his family. And those of us who've been in church a while know this, but we love gossip anyway, so we have artful ways of gossiping while remaining outwardly pious. We do it masterfully, right, with Pissarithmus prayers, right? Well, Lord, I just want to pray for Janice's marriage. Lord, she and her husband are just going through such a difficult time. <laughs> and the rat marriage really needs help. Would, would you please pull them back as they move towards the edge of divorce? <laughs> Jesus. And break the chains of Paul's addiction. That I just... Amen. In the real world, this is called a leak. <laughs> you know what a leak is? From the world of politics, when someone pretends to innocently mention or accidentally slip, up and reveal inside information, they have ulterior motives. They want others to know so that they innocently leak it. And we have leaky prayers, don't we? Although that kind of gossip is well disguised it's probably the most toxic form of unwholesome talk. Why? Because it feigns concern for the person that you're talking about. No doubt, gossip is the ultimate trust buster in community. It's a betrayal of confidences, and it indulges our worst impulses. Go back one, Jeff. I mean, why do we do this? Why do we actually delight in someone else's failure and feel compelled to pass it on? I mean, for one, right, puts us in a position of power. We know something no one else knows. But secondly, it often makes us feel better about ourselves. Wow, I'm not actually doing as badly as so-and-so. I'd never get divorced. Can you believe she's considering it? I mean, just the very act of talking behind someone's back is illustrative. Think about this. The biblical model, I mean, it's not any model, for healthy communication is what? Face-to-face, right? That's what a family does. It's how loved ones relate, how intimate friends talk with one another. But when we learn of someone else's flaw or problem and don't talk with them directly and instead go to another person, what are we doing? We turn our back on them. We break relationship, betrayal. We cause division. That's where you actually get the phrase, talking behind someone's back. So why is it so common in church families? If it's that corrosive, it undermines unity like nothing else, why do we do it? Why do we risk it? Well, perhaps the most common reason we gossip is actually fear. Fear of confrontation. See, when someone else hurts us and it causes a wound, makes us angry or upset, instead of confronting them about it, that is, taking unity seriously and loving them enough to actually talk directly with them, we express our hurt through leaky words about their character. Let, let's say, I'm just going to use guys in, uh, Tara. Ta- sorry, Tara. I know, it's like, don't use me as an example in this message, please. No, this isn't true. Okay, let's say Tara, feels so, she just feels like it's getting weird or something. She has some relational static with, 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 uh, with Sarah. She's feeling something funky about their, like, friendship. I don't know. But instead of going hurt directly about it, we'll just make it rhyme, okay? She goes to her friend, Lara. So Tara feels weirdness with Sarah and she goes to Lara and she says, you know, I don't know what to do with Sarah. She seems like, I don't know, just really nasty lately. But Lara considers herself a peacemaker. She doesn't like conflict. So she goes, really? Wow. So she goes to Sarah and says, Tara thinks you've been acting kind of strange lately. And Sarah's like, me? How about her? Did you see her the other night at the dinner club? She's totally out of line. And so Lara goes back to Tara and says, I spoke with Sarah. She actually thinks you're the problem. You're hurt, that's actually called triangulation. You're hurt by another's words, or you don't like how they're acting, so you take a shot at them with some friends when they're not present. And maybe they pass it along, and the gossip or slander, half-truth, misunderstandings, it actually gets leg, and it spreads. And slowly it becomes the truth about so-and-so. And And you find yourself then all of a sudden, you know how you know when gossip is taking root? You start having actually strong, specific feelings towards someone you've actually never interacted with face-to-face they become defined by that juicy tidbit that others have spread about them. And that's how a family becomes infected. Everyone looking sideways, suspicious at one another, and filling in the blanks. Based on second or third-hand conversations, we've heard about so-and-so. Keep your distance from her. You can't trust Jay. He's a gossip. That's gossiping about gossipers. (laughs) Gossip is often fueled by malice the desire to get even or injure another person, in this case just with words. Or maybe it's not malice, perhaps you're just afraid to talk with them directly. Let's, let's say someone hurts you, they left you out of a gathering, they said something funny about you, and now your relationship is kind of... No, 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 it's just, there's a weirdness there. But you're like, I can't go to them directly. Either you don't have the guts or you're afraid maybe they'll hurt you again. That's legit. Well, here's the deal. That doesn't just go away. <laughs> your hurt actually has to go somewhere, and so you share it with others over the phone and email. Yeah, I couldn't believe so-and-so totally ignored me the other night. It was so rude of her. And now I hear she said such-and-such to so-and-so during small group, and I've noticed she's been wearing a lot of green lately. (laughs) You can't help yourself. Your hurt naturally has to go somewhere, and you're afraid to confront the other person, so you turn somewhere else for solace. That is not acceptable option in God's eyes. Not how he wants the family to deal with their hurts or to relate with one another. In a true family, we're going to step on each other's toes. That's an absolute given. You're going to hurt each other at times, on purpose at times, and unintentionally at others. And it's what we do in the wake of that hurt that determines whether the unity of God's family is preserved. Gossip corrodes and and, and, and deteriorates that bond of peace like nothing else. And that's why the Bible commands those in the family of God to resolve conflict quickly. That's the final aspect of what it means to safeguard the unity of our church. In Matthew 18, Jesus provides some some clear instruction to his followers actually on how we are to handle conflict and resolve it directly. This is Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Let's read the last part together. Just between the two of you. Ooh, what an amazing phrase. Amazing phrase. If. First off, Jesus starts it with if. Meaning, if he hurts you. Open to the possibility that perhaps you don't have the full story. That what you heard is not all there. Actually, I'm going to ask you to resist the temptation to fill in the blanks. Or allow that you may have interpreted something incorrectly. That actually, Tara hasn't been giving you the cold shoulder or the brush off. She just hasn't been actually getting emails. But if you believe you've been sinned against or hurt in some way, go and show him his fault. That is, you take the initiative. And I know this is hard. You're the one who's been wounded, but the burden is actually on you to be the one who initiates reconciliation. Yeah, I told you at the beginning, this is costly kinds of love that we're talking about. You directly address the offense. Not, and not in a cranked up, emotionally loaded, like, I can't believe you did this to me kind of way. But you actually restore connection with humility and gentleness. You see these verses now coming together? You might actually give that person the benefit of the doubt. You know, hey, I, I actually want to talk with you about something. I just feel like something's like causing static in our friendship. Like something happened that I, I, I feel kind of funky about. I mean, I don't want to be small, but like at dinner the other night, when you were making fun of people who, you know, you're like who can't keep a job, I just felt like you were referring to me. Like you're the only one who knows I just lost my third job. Now, I don't know if that's me being, like, oversensitive, but it made me feel funny. I just wanted to see how you intended that. I know, awkward conversation, but that's love. Or it might be as simple as confessing your own insecurity. Hey, the other night after small group when it was over and, like, everyone went out for, afterwards for dinner, but I didn't get invited, I, I think it just hurt my feelings. I, I, like, I don't know, I felt left out. I know it's awkward, but you put it out there in the hopes that true come unity, a coming into unity will happen. And you do it out of love. You never confront out of anger. But you do it because you're trying to preserve a relationship that's at risk because a sin or an offense has occurred. And that relationship could could you know endanger your relationship or that person's relationship with God. You say, you know what, hey bro, I know this is hard. I know I don't want to be like all legalistic, but we need to sit down and talk a minute. This is hard. I don't want to be judgmental, but when we were out this weekend, you really drank a lot, and honestly, you seemed just drunk. Like you crossed the line, and I wanted to talk with you about it. You go directly to that person. You don't advertise their failure to others. Man, Lenny was lit up the other night. Did you see how much he drank? No, that's sin. That's sin. Jesus says, you directly go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Can we repeat those words together? Just between the two of you. You keep the communication direct. You keep it confidential. You protect their interests. You guard their reputations. That's what it means to look out for one another and safeguard the unity of the family. You see see what Jesus is introducing here? This is like God the Father establishing the family dynamic. Okay, this is how things are going to work in my family, kids, when there's a problem. Here are the house rules. If your sister sins against you, you go and show her her fault. Okay, Just between the two of you though, don't go dragging me into this. Don't mince words, don't pretend. If you flip back to Ephesians verse 25, Paul says, you start understanding what he's writing. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Why? For we are all members of one body. God doesn't want us to just preserve the peace by being silent. That's not what unity is. This is the family dynamic that says, this is not the family dynamic that says, keep the junk under the rug, just preserve the peace. This is actually doing the hard thing. Hit it head on, speak the truth. Because it's not only the hardest thing, it's the loving thing as well. It means you value them enough as a brother or sister to risk putting yourself out there to protect their relationship. Don't play games, Paul says. The unity of the body is at stake. No, If you've been hurt, go directly and speak the truth, but keep it just between the two of you. And if you've been hurt and you're angry about it, and I assume there are some people tonight, and they're like, oh, I shouldn't have come tonight. This is raising all this junk in me. That's okay. Paul continues in verse 26. He says, in your anger, do not sin. <laughs> Newsflash. Ready? You learn nothing else. Getting angry is not sinful. In your anger, do not sin. That's one of the most widespread distortions in the Christian life, that anger is actually sinful. Uh-uh. Anger is a natural response to something unnatural. Sin. Something we were never intended to experience. Another place in the Bible that actually says, go ahead and get angry. You do well to be angry. But in your anger then, do not sin. That is no... Don't let it fuel your desire for revenge. Instead, resolve conflict quickly. That's the rest of verse 27. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That's what this is about, folks. When we use the language of safeguarding the unity of our church, it implies that the unity is what? Under attack. And make no doubt about it, gossip and fear of conflict are two of the most subversive weapons that the enemy uses to undermine community or to cause division or to spark factions. Maybe you've come from a church where you've seen the tragic results of unresolved conflict. And there was a split or a schism, or a breakup. That's not coincidence. Remember, Jesus says, unity among the believers actually will be a testimony to my lordship. You think the devil's going to let that go unchallenged? (laughs) What's an easy way to thwart the spread of the gospel? How about getting Christians to take out the knives and claws towards one another? Yeah, that actually will have real appeal to the world. I want to be part of that. Who would want to be part of that? Instead, Paul exhorts in his closing verses in 31 and 32, he says... Get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. He's writing this to church people, not non-church people. (laughs) Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Just as it was between God and man. Reconciliation is the goal in our relationships with one another. How much will you sacrifice to preserve the peace? Will you go as far as Jesus did? I told you it's costly. It isn't wispy love? But here's the deal. I said it before because you're like, "Oh, that's unfair. That's tough, man." Jesus will never ask you to do something; he wasn't willing to do himself. Confrontation is hard when someone wounds you, but Jesus gives us a real life model to follow. And I'd like to actually close with his example. Turn to Matthew 26. This is the very end of it. Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Mm. I think it's fair to say Jesus knew something about betrayal or breakdown of trust. And this is not about Judas. This is the famous passage in which Peter, who professed so adamantly to love Jesus and be with him to the end, actually disowns Jesus in the final hours before his crucifixion. Talk about a wound from a friend. Here's an offense. This is after Jesus was arrested and the disciples scatter. Peter is spotted in the crowd um, who had turned on Christ at that point. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. This is the guy Jesus poured three years of his life into. Took him out of the fishing boat. Said, I'm going to give my very life to you. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people, This fellow here was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. I hear you. Then he began to call down curses on himself. What the? And swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus has spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me. Three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly betrayed and disowned by one of his closest friends, one of the guys in his small group, in his moment of greatest need. To say there was a relational failure in Jesus' small group community is putting it mildly. (laughs) But it's instructive. There was a failure in Jesus' small group community. His trusted band of 12, there will be a failure in yours too. Maybe not betrayal, but a slight. Intentional or not, that will hurt you, it will break your trust, result in relational breakdown. Well, in that moment, we are to follow Jesus' example. Because after being betrayed by Peter, what happens? Actually, he doesn't have a moment to talk again with Peter. He's crucified. He's buried. And three days later, he comes back to life. We'll celebrate that in Easter in a week. But when he comes back, he actually doesn't pretend it never happened or dismiss it. He doesn't say, Everything's okay, Peter. I survived. I'm alive again. No worries, bro. Rather, one of the first things Jesus does is confront Peter with his sin in order to restore the relationship between. The record of the confrontation is in John twenty-one. You can turn to that. It's a wonderful thing. I love how John just kind of picks up where Matthew left off. John twenty-one. This is verse fifteen. Jesus appears to the disciples. They're actually out fishing in a boat. They go back to their day jobs. They're like, I don't know, Jesus is dead. He comes back. There's this guy fishing on his beach. beach, He's on the beach cooking them. uh, He says, bring in the fish. Come over here, guys. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said. "You, You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I, I I love the model Jesus gives us for resolving conflict because he's so artful about it. Now catch this. This is the first time Peter has had a lone time with Jesus since the events of his death. And no doubt Peter was keenly aware of how he had failed his friend. How many times? Three. Does Jesus let it go? No. No sweeping it under the rug. Does he light into Peter? How could you do that to me? I told you I was going to... No. Rather, he brings it up in one of the most artful ways that demonstrates tremendous sensitivity... Kindness and compassion in confronting him. First, he cooks him breakfast. This is on the beach after they've been fishing. Hospitality. Let me make you breakfast, Peter. Come here a minute. Second, how does he bring it up? By asking Peter a question about the nature of their relationship. Do you love me? How many times? Three times. The exact number of times that Peter had disowned him. This is a direct and indirect reference to Peter's offense. And Peter was painfully aware of that, no doubt. What he wasn't expecting was Jesus' gracious response. That is, what does Jesus do when Peter says, when he says, do you love me? In and effect, and, and, and Peter goes, I do love you. Kind of apologizing for his failure. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. In other words, he gives him a second chance. In a dramatic gesture of forgiveness, Jesus puts the person responsible for his betrayal in a position of primary trust, care, and protection. He restores the trust. He repairs the relationship through forgiveness and invites his brother back into a covenant relationship. Jesus' goal is not simply to vent or tell Peter how bad he was hurt again, to see the pain that he caused. Rather, the goal was reconciliation. I'm going to repair the priest here. He does it in a way that combines both telling the truth and showing grace. Notice something else. Jesus keeps it just between the two of them. Doesn't gather the rest of the disciples around for a roast. Hey Matt, did you hear what happened before the rooster crowed? Check this out. Remember that? Yeah, I didn't forget Peter. Their disciples were likely watching, no doubt, and witnesses Jesus' loving approach to restoring Peter. What a gift. I imagine the relief that Peter must have felt. Jesus himself removes the cloud of his public denial and entrusts him with a key position in his kingdom. Peter and Jesus had a relationship breakdown. Major breach of trust between brothers. And so will we. Yet we are to follow our master's model. Take the initiative and go and show him or her his fault and heal it. So a question for you to close. Is there somebody in this church family who's hurt you? Or perhaps you wounded them. And you've had a falling out. And perhaps God is prompting you to resolve that conflict. Does anyone come to mind that you need to go to? About a month ago, I don't think it was at this service, I think it was at the 730, I actually, I, I, I had to go to somebody, because I wounded my friend Brian, a close friend of mine, one of our small group leaders. I, I can't even remember the full thing, I said something totally stupid and off the cuff in a sermon. He was like participating in a sermon, like, you know, everyone knows better than participate at this point when I ask a question, but like Brian participated, and I was like, oh yeah, not you, Brian, you know. And just the minute it came out of my mouth, I was just like, whoa, I just mishandled my friend's heart. And I went to him after the service downstairs, and I was just like, hey, I said that thing upstairs. I'm, I just want, I need to apologize to you. I wish I could do it upstairs in the big, in the big meeting. I, I just I left my brain on the doorstep there. I'm sorry. I don't know why I did that. You know, he said, thank you, because you know what? That, that actually did hurt me. That was, that was hurtful. And he turned to me and he said, but I forgive you, man. It's okay. We're all going to make mistakes." He didn't just go, Oh no, it was no big deal. He said, No, you actually did hurt me, Tim. He said, I actually was going to say something to you if you didn't come see me. (laughs) Surprise. It's made a relationship even stronger. The funny thing is, most of us imagine actually going to another person and telling them how they've hurt us. Isn't that what you're picturing right now? You're like, I should go to her. But no one imagines at this moment right now that maybe someone's thinking of coming to you. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a surprise? In ten minutes you're heading for your car in the parking lot and thinking, wow, you know, I think I really need to talk to so and so. And then your friend intercepts you and says, Hey, wait up, Lance, can I talk to you for a sec? (laughs) Pastor Tim's message made me realize I need to be honest. How I was really hurt by that thing you did, you know. That really stung me. What will be your response when someone offers you correction? This is the moment of truth in a family. How will you respond if you're on the receiving end, not the talking end? See, true conflict resolution is vitally dependent on the confronted party actually being open and listening and learning, wanting to learn how they've wronged the other. God says, don't get defensive in my family. If you're the one confronted, then there should be a receptivity and openness in your heart to honor your sister who loved you enough to come to you directly. Will you listen to them? Learn where you failed or hurt them? Whether, whether it was intentional or inadvertent, that's actually why we don't resolve conflict, according to Matthew 18. If you look at the whole passage, we'll end now because I don't have the time for this. It's, a, it's really, that's another message on church discipline. But in Matthew 18, it says, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over, verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that you can gang up. No. So, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, a refusal to listen is the one thing that makes reconciliation unsuccessful. It's not the telling, it's the listening. The emphasis is on being reasonable. It talks about taking another friend or two along with you if, you're, if your first attempt doesn't work, and that's not to gang up. <laughs> if you still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. In our context, that's a small group community that you're traveling with. People who are actually connected relationally with you and and share a common life. And if she still refuses to listen, treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Why? Because God says, if they still don't listen, then they're obviously not a true member of my family. Because my true children are interested in being reconciled, and they're only interested in being right. This is my family, and I want you to safeguard its unity at all costs. And at times that requires the courage to confront and sometimes it will require the humility to listen and be the one corrected. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. U-N-I-T-Y. It's the defining characteristics of the family of God. It's one of the central core values that serves as our mission as a church. That's why it appears in our family covenant, which you can take home and we'll offer, ask you to comment on it online. As we saw, it's a working draft, so you can go on our blog and comment on it and say, I don't like this part, I think this is right on. It's how God's family functions, flourishes, and ultimately spreads its influence to the broken world around us. I want to close by asking us actually all to stand. When we do that, I want to read together, just uh, out loud, the message paraphrase of Ephesians 4. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. Let's read this together in unison, okay? Do this with humility and discipline, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may unity increasingly become the identifying mark of our church family. Would you give us the strength to make allowance for each other's faults because that's what you've done with us. Help guard our lips in the words that flow from them so that we build one another up. Would you give us the courage to confront when we're upset or have been hurt? Give us humility to listen when we're the ones in need of correction. Father, may the world know we are your children by the love that we have for one another. And may the unity of this church community bear witness to what Jesus Christ has done out of his love for us. Jesus, thank you for covering our faults and repairing our relationship through your loving sacrifice on the cross. Now change us through your spirit's power. And all God's people said, Amen.